Well, this morning I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 1 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 to 14. As we continue in our series, this is your, this is our life. One of the casualties amongst the many cancellations due to the COVID-19 pandemic was the Grand National. That annual jump race for horses that's held in uh, the entry course in Liverpool every April. For me, the sign of the Grand National growing up was always that of the BBC One's grandstand voice of leading horse racing commentator Peter O'Sullivan. He died back in 2015, having commentated on 50 Grand Nationals back-to-back over the years. O'Sullivan, interestingly, was born in Newcastle County Down, but it was his quiet, confident voice that was familiar to so many, steadily increasing the tension as a race unfolded. It went maybe something like this. And here we are in this final furlong, one furlong to go, and it's Crocodile Chase leading Lester Piggott on Smuggler's Tail, with the familiar colours of Battle Royale coming in behind. They come to the turn, and... They're up and over and neck and neck as they come to the finishing straight. And you know, his skill as a commentator was beginning slowly, evenly, quietly, even maybe some might say lazily at the start, rising to a fever pitch excitement by the end as the crowd followed along, exploding with enthusiasm. But for Paul's opening verses in this letter in Ephesians, There is no lazy introduction. Rather, they burst out from our Bibles with a rhapsody of great praise. For this is a man right from the off who cannot contain his excitement about what he's explaining on behalf of his readers. For this God they worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is full of praise that bursts out. Boys and girls, have you ever seen one of those cartoons or played that winter game on the Wii or the Xbox where the skier lands in the snow and starts to roll and as he rolls, he rolls himself so fast round and round and round and round to the bottom of the slope, he ends up at the bottom looking like a human snowball with arms and legs and skis sticking out at the sides. That's something of what Paul is doing with his words. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, it is just one sentence in the original Greek. Just one sentence. No commas, capital letters, full stops, punctuation. P5 teachers out there would go ballistic with Paul. Such are the words he piles up without stopping, all pouring out of him in praise of his God. He's so excited, he just cannot hide it. And what a God he must be. If these words of incredible praise are pouring out from the lips of Paul, who were introduced to there in verse 1 as an apostle of Jesus Christ, formerly known as Saul, who once hated Christ and wanted to strangle the Christian church in its infancy, and now he cannot find enough words to describe the beauty of a Savior and support the church, even in Ephesus. What an incredible change has taken place in this man, Saul, from persecutor to praiser. And this same Paul, who now is a messenger of Christ Jesus, verse 1, writes these words of joy. We read in chapter 3, verse 1, as a prisoner in Rome. And any prisoner or persecuted Christian with praise on his lips must be worth listening to, mustn't they? 
We all want to know what's the secret of his excitement and contentment. What keeps him looking up when life is looking down? Well, roll with me into these verses this morning as Paul describes our life, your life, my life as Christians, as God's holy people, saints of God, as verse 1 describes us. For these words illustrate for us how as sinners such as we are can become part of that same family of God. First of all today, notice with me, we are chosen by God the Father in verses 3 to 6. We are chosen by God the Father Salvation is far older than we imagine. Paul reaches back deep into pre-creation eternity as we read verse 4 together. For he, that is God the Father, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Do you see that? The plan connected his eternal son Christ with us those whom he proposed to adopt as sons. Verse 4 makes it clear that God the Father chose us in him. God drew us and Christ together in his mind, determining to make us who did not yet exist his own children through the redeeming work of Jesus, which had not yet taken place. It was a definite once and for all decision as we read he chose us in him. It's a past and he has chosen us in him. There was a moment in pre-creation history when God set his heart on us. Paul makes it very clear that the plan of salvation is initiated by God the Father. He started the snowball of salvation that rolls and gathers momentum throughout all of history on our behalf. And we must avoid the notion that somehow God the Son alone is the hero who tugs at the reluctant heart of an angry father. No, God the Father does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God the Father loved us. And he did it, as we read on in verse 4, in love. It wasn't without compulsion. It was out of his love, his good pleasure, verse 5, and his own will. In fact, these verses remind us that we, when on his mind to choose us, verse 4, were actually unholy and blameworthy, deserving of judgment, not adoption, and his aim was to turn that round and make us right. Now, as some of you know, these verses are a summary of what we call the doctrine of election where God chooses us, or predestination, that God in eternity past has already set his love upon his people. And many, many people today struggle with this. Christians ask questions like, but didn't I make a decision for Christ? Well, the answer is yes, indeed you did, and you did it freely, but only because in eternity God decided on you first. Dale Ralph Davis, in his book on the church entitled The House That Jesus Built, was actually written for teenagers, but it's very helpful in explaining this. He says, When we say that God is really big, we mean he is sovereign, that all things are under his sway, even fallen sparrows from Matthew 10, 29. But more than that, we believe God is so big that we would never come to Jesus in faith unless he brought us and made us able to come. You'd think we were helpless, huh? 
true. Jesus himself says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. People do not come to Jesus because they think it's a good idea. If any of us ever trusts in Jesus, it's only because the Father gives us to Jesus and brings us to Jesus. This offends many people, but we can only say, argue with Jesus. He's the one who said it. And you see, people will tell you that it's old dead theologians like Augustine and Luther and Calvin who made all of this predestination stuff up. And yet if you read your Bible, it's one of the Bible's big themes in the Old Testament. God chose Noah and his family for rescue from the ark. God chose Abraham and his family, plucking them out of obscurity in Genesis 11 and 12. God chose Israel as his special people. But in that, we always need reminding these people in the Old Testament, like us, who have the New Testament, were not chosen, as Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 reminds us, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were fewer than the other peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. You see, even though we don't fully understand it, and we find it difficult to explain it, we can't avoid it because the Bible teaches it. And it's not a doctrine for us to be one bit ashamed of because it speaks to us of an everlasting Father who is not a distant being who waits around to see what we as humans will do. You see, God is not a reactionary plan B kind of God, muddling through, trying to remedy the mistakes of the world and the sin. And say, oh, dearie me, sin has entered the world. Oh, I hadn't counted on that, scratching his head in heaven, wondering what he's going to do. How can I forgive those who I want to forgive? Right, I know, let's send Jesus uh, and let's just see what happens. No, no, our God is bigger than that, greater than that. God from before time began plans to work through his son and by his spirit for human beings and with human beings. He chooses those who will be his on the basis of his character, his plan, his action, his love, not ours. The initiative is God's and it's based on his grace. Salvation is not some afterthought on the part of God. His purpose was to draw us to himself personally. He had you in mind before this earth was formed. He had you in his heart to save you from your sin because he loved you. Your personal salvation is a pleasure to God. Did you hear that? Your personal salvation is a pleasure to God. It is all of God's grace, God's love, God's will, God's purpose, God's choice. Read the passage over again later and see how many times our salvation is described as what he has done. We can claim no merit for our salvation. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that such a relief to you and to me today? What a God! He does it for us. It means that on my worst days... I am his because he chose me. On my best days, I am his because he chose me. On my off days, on days, close days, far away days, working days, holidays, 
employed days, unemployed days, pain-free, painful, anxious, carefree, lockdown or life back to normal days, sinful or sinless days. He says, I'm his because he chose me. Not because I am great, but because he is God. I am so glad my salvation does not depend on me. For if it did, it would be a little bit like the spiritual hokey-cokey, or you might even call it the spiritual Brexit. If it all depended on how I felt on any given day, or how sinless or sinful I would be on any one day, one day I would be in, next day out, in, out, in, out. For I blow like the wind, but our God has his eyes and his heart steadily fixed on us forever. He is the anchor of our souls. Is it any wonder Paul was so full of his pandemic of praise that swept across his whole being, even in his lockdown in a jail? What a God I have, he's saying. A God who chose me not because of who I am, but despite of who I am and because of who he is. Friends in Union Road and La Comfort, join me, join Paul. Instead of seeing election and predestination as a problem to be worked out, see it as amazing grace that reached down. And be flabbergasted and lost in wonder, love and praise, for our salvation is as sure as the God who makes it possible, decided in eternity past, rooted in his love. And all of this grand initiative in ancient eternity was worked out for us on a date and in time in human history. As we see that secondly today, we have redemption through God the Son in verses 6 to 10. Salvation is far richer than you think. Verses 6 to 10, we have a redemption through God the Son. Salvation is far richer than you think. You see, we have a great need. God recognized this huge yawning gap, this gulf between sinful mankind and, and his holiness. And whilst he has set his love upon us, he cannot simply sweep it away and hide it under the great heavenly carpet. For we have a God who is just and holy. For example, there would be complete media outcry, an online frenzy, the Nolan show would be bunged with listeners buzzing in and people gnashing their teeth in anger at the injustice if a respected judge freed a self-confessed criminal who had done great harm to many people. It simply wouldn't be fair. Justice would not have been carried out. You could never trust that judge in his judgments again. And God is the eternal judge. And we are that convicted sinner, guilty of crimes against him and his law and humanity. So God cannot just hush it up. A sentence needs to be passed against the crimes that we have committed. For that's justice, isn't it? There'd be an outcry that we wouldn't have a just and a fair God if that wasn't the case. You know, a judge can't let someone away with something just because he or she likes them. That would be outrageous, unfair. And in the eternal drama of our salvation, that is what happens. God loves us, yes, but our sins still have to be paid for. 
And in verses 7 to 10, we read of that price that has been paid. But instead of God's children paying for it, God's eternal Son pays for us. That is the meaning of the word redemption that we have here in these middle verses. It means deliverance from slavery by payment of a price. And here it is equated immediately with forgiveness. For the deliverance in question is a rescue from the just judgment of God upon our sins and the price that was paid, as we read here, was the shedding of his blood in verse 7. God the Son becomes the focal point of how God carries out our salvation in time and space and history. This incredible gift of the sacrifice of another, God the Son, should become our sin offering, taking upon himself our sin, facing the justice of our God as a substitute, as verses 7 and 8 put it. Do you see with me there? In accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. You see, grace is not just a theory. We might talk about grace, but grace is seen in a person. Redemption, sacrifice, our freedom from sin's power to separate us from Christ, and it all falls on Christ the Son. The plan is executed in him and falls upon him. Could God's grace be any clearer? It is not just receiving something we don't deserve, but we receive God himself as the gift we don't deserve, who pays for the sin. And this is where Paul turns our Northern Irish Christian chat completely on its head, because for years we have urged and called and emphasized in our evangelism and in our missions that we kind of squeeze him into our lives and say, I accepted Jesus into my heart. And we do know what we mean by that. And we call it conversion. But if that is where we stop, we have missed out on the storehouses of eternal blessing that he wants us to share in, in the true biblical Ephesians chapter 1 sense. The amazing thing about our salvation is not that we bring him into our lives like he was someone waiting in the school playground to get picked for the school team, or at a social on a Saturday night, waiting around the walls, waiting to be asked up for a dance. No, it's much more incredible than that. He chooses us and brings us into him. Go and read Ephesians 1 over again later. For there we read in Scripture, Paul describing our new life in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. It's all rooted in him. Paul wants us to see the absolute solidarity between forgiven sinners, now God's children, and the Savior in Christ Jesus. In the incarnation, God enters the grime and darkness of humanity as a sinless man, but by faith we enter the glory and redemption of God as sinful people. Sometimes in the whole salvation story, we can quickly swap Christ into our place at the cross and leave him there paying for our sins with ourselves out of the picture, almost doing nothing. Whereas in Paul's view, we are caught up with Christ and made one in Christ and come together by faith in him. Jesus the Son, whom he loves, and in him God is well pleased. And now in Christ, we are in him, and we are now God's beloved sons, and he is now well pleased with us. Isn't that incredible? 
All Jesus is, we enter into. For Paul, faith is incorporation into Christ, a fellowship with him that must now determine all of our lives, for we're united to him. Being in Christ is just another way to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He determines our being and our doing. Christians must live like people who know their geography. Where are you? As a Christian, you're in Christ. We're part of him. Christians should never, ever view themselves merely as individuals. For we are part of Christ and part of that body of Christ. And you see, everything we now do as Christians, good or bad, involves Christ because we are in him. Knowing that we're part of him brings a change in us and how we live. And the rest of Ephesians is all about that. What we say. For when we say it, we say it as those who are in Christ. What we watch. We watch it as those who are in Christ. What we spend our money on. We spend it as those who are in Christ. So let me ask all of us today. What are we dragging Christ into in our lives, in our seeing, our hearing, our speaking, our doing? What are we dragging Christ into where he should never be near? What are we connecting him with in how we speak of others or how we live our lives? And for those of you who are watching today who aren't yet Christians yet, I encourage you, as Paul does here, not to invite Jesus into your life, but hear him invite you into his. This Christian faith isn't about believing in certain facts or looking a certain way or going to certain meetings. It's about entering into the greatest reality of this world, of a God who loves and cares and commits and saves and restores and assures. Oh, friend, today, won't you come in and join us in Christ and find that as we often sing, May it be true of us that in Christ alone our hope is found, that he is our strength, our hope, our song. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease. Our comforter, our all in all, here in the love of Christ, we stand. There's no better time in all of our lives at this strange time that we're walking through to enter into the security of being in Christ Jesus, hidden secure in those eternal arms. And Paul's Christ is no longer viewed merely as a human being. We read in verse 10 that he is the cosmic Christ. Look at verse 10. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. For God has done so much more than choose us in the past and bring us into his family in the present. He's moving towards an incredible goal, an amazing end. This is the mystery that's been revealed to us as Christians, as verse 9 talks about. This world and all that's in it find its meaning, its purpose, its plan, its fulfillment, its finale. It all comes together in Christ. Various philosophers and historians over the years have mocked the idea of God or some powerful being in control of this world. One such a French author and philosopher, André Marot, said, 
The universe is indifferent. Who created? Why are we on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I'm quite convinced that no one has the least idea. Not cheery. But have you not noticed at this time of COVID-19 crisis how things have changed for people? Instead of cheering celebrities and or being in awe of those plastic Hollywood stars, we've been clapping the ordinary people who do extraordinary work. This world continues to seek true heroes, a better story to applaud and, and thank but Paul here reveals the mystery to us and for us, that there is something more. God is arranging things in this world. The word behind it in the Greek is the word oikos, this ordering meaning house. And God has been putting this world's house in order, dealing first of all with sin by providing a savior, conquering death as Jesus rises from the tomb so that one day everyone will see Jesus Christ as Lord. That there's an ultimate hero who is worth applauding, who is worth receiving our praise. There is a better story worth following. Let me take you back for a moment to a primary school sports day a number of years ago. And the headmaster announces, it's time for the dad's race. And so, as often happens, there were some who disappeared behind walls, whilst others suddenly grabbed the baby's buggy to pretend that they were caring for it. Whilst there were those, as we well know them, who came fully prepared with their tracksuits on and they tied their running shoes and they're ready to go. But there was one man I noticed who took off his glasses, took out his wallet, mobile phone, car keys in preparation for the race. But as he looked around, he realized that there was no family member to hand it to and he didn't seem to know anyone round about him. And I heard him say to one lady, I'm sorry, I don't know you, but you look trustworthy. Can I leave these things with you whilst I run the race? Cars, mobile phone, keys, wallet, all the things today that we count as our most treasured possessions. He didn't know this lady, but in trust he handed over his possessions. But this is where we are at a distinct advantage to the world. We do know the God into whose hands we give our lives whilst we run our race. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has graced us with his Son. He has revealed his trustworthiness and his commitment to us, not just in eternity past, but in the blood, sweat, tears, dust and agony of Gethsemane, Golgotha and the grave. Why should we not trust him with everything? The world is fractured and broken. But these words make us want to crane our necks and stand on tiptoes and, and look out to when God's going to restore this to unity and perfection and peace. The universe will be under new management. This is a definite, decisive, Christ-centered plan involving all things in heaven and on earth. Let that encourage us today, despite world wars, VE days and national strife and cancer and coronavirus, personal concerns, family or finances. He wants you and me as children of God to see that we are in him. That we're in him. And that you will share this glory with him. Verse 3 tells us that we receive every spiritual blessing 
in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's like the doors of heaven are open and everything's just piling out and it's there for us. That mystery of the world has been unlocked, opened, and shared with us. And what treasures come tumbling out. As thirdly and finally today, we see we have protection in God the Holy Spirit, verses 11 to 14, that salvation is more certain than we could ever imagine. Let me read those verses to you again. In him, that is Jesus again, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, everything the Father planned for us and Son purchased for us has been worked into us by God the Holy Spirit. His work is one of the main features of this letter of Ephesians, and we'll spend more time thinking about him in the weeks to come. In fact, he appears in every chapter, and Paul treats him as a real person. He is a he, not an it. He is a person, not just a power. And to help us understand his work, Paul uses two simple metaphors. The Spirit is a seal, we read in verse 13. Not the our, our, our seal that the kids would laugh at on a trip to the zoo, but having heard the truth of the gospel and believed that Christians are sealed with the Spirit, verse 13, a gift that's given to every believer without exception. And this is a mark that reminds us that we belong to God, like the seal used to brand an animal on our farms, whether it be the tag in the ear or the paint mark on the back or the number branded on the side or even these days a microchip implanted. That mark is evidence of who the owner is, who it belongs to. It's a mark of belonging. And if God by his Spirit has marked us out, we belong to him. And we are his possessions. And the Spirit, we read in verse 14, is also a pledge, a deposit that guarantees, meaning the purchase price has been paid in advance. Many of us have been doing a lot more online shopping recently because we can't often get to the shops. And whenever we do that online shopping, we entrust that website, secure and all as it tells it is, with our credit card details. And then we get an email or a bleep on our phone that tells us that the item is ours, that the transaction is taking place. And then for some companies, endless emails almost every day, tracking the delivery of that item until it arrives at our doorstep. Frustrating and maybe annoying as it might be, these regular updates, there's something reassuring about it because it's the deposit that guarantees what belongs to us. And the Holy Spirit is like that for us. He's a daily reminder in us of what we have and what is coming our way. It's like the, the regular emails that we receive from that firm that we bought something from. The Holy Spirit works in us every day, reminding us, reminding whose we are, that we belong to him, that we have a guarantee, a deep assurance that we share in the ultimate inheritance, the real estate and property of the Prince of Heaven. So when we feel anxious, frustrated, and disappointed over circumstances or even our sin, 
You know what? Even in those moments, that is the Holy Spirit making us homesick for heaven. This Sunday, the 10th of May, is, is actually my birthday. And I feel like I've only licked the icing on the birthday cake today without sinking our teeth deeply into the wonders of the delicious sponge of what's before us in Ephesians chapter 1. Of God, the source and splendor of our salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what are we going to do with this passage today? This rolling snowball of verses coming rapidly down the mountain towards us should result in praise. What does it say in verse 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, our lives are for the praise of his glory. Verse 14, we are God's possessions. To the praise of his glory. How did we become his people? According to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he make us his people? For the praise of his glorious grace. For this is where everything begins and ends. But you see, we live in such a self-centered world. That's what sin's done to our world. You see, our sins have turned us into mirrors that look in upon ourselves all the time. We look into that mirror. How do I feel? How is this going to affect me? What's in this for me? How can I come out looking best and all of it? And we're looking at ourselves all the time. What's in this for me and me and me? Whereas God's salvation has turned us inside out so that we're to be those who turn that mirror around. And it's as if the grace that we receive from our God is reflected back in praise and thanksgiving and goodness and grace as we have been blessed and bounces of us and we are blessed to be a blessing. The Christian faith as a religion is one of grace. Receiving from God what we never deserved. And our lives are to be marked by gratitude. In his sight, we are not regarded as worthless, purposeless, useless, but we are his treasured, valued, cared for family. What can we do but praise? For that is what we were made for. In 1916, Hetty Green died she was one of the first ever billionaires, and she left an estate valued at over a hundred million dollars. She became known as America's greatest miser because she spent her life eating cold oatmeal because it cost her to heat it. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free clinic that his case became incurable. She was wealthy, and yet she chose to live like a pauper. She was so foolish that she even hastened her own death by bringing on an attack of apoplexy whilst arguing about the price of buying skimmed milk. But Hetty Green is an example of too many Christians today. We have limitless resources at our disposal, and yet we live like paupers. Let us learn to live in the reality of belonging to God, people who know what is already ours. Let's not live like paupers, but let's live like kings, for we are chosen by God the Father, redeemed through God the Son, and we are protected in God the Holy Spirit. 
And this does not end up resulting in pride, but rather to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, source of our salvation and God of all grace, before we get up and get on and do the next thing today, we do want to pause for praise. We want to marvel in these moments at your grace that saves us, a grace that was planned in eternity past and carried out in history. We thank that at the cross we see your real-time love for us and blood shed in a redemption price that has been paid. Lord, that is what love cost you. And for the gift of your Spirit that seals us and keeps us and is a guarantee of your goodness, the one who works within us, yearning for more, crying out that Jesus would be Lord over us and in us, and Jesus would come back for us. Father, as we respond today, it must be in praise. We do not understand why you should set your love on us, but in all this grace, all you look for from us is gratitude, lives that are lived for you, eyes lifted to you, hearts rooted in you. Oh Lord, that is true revival. That is the Spirit unlocking our hearts and revealing your mystery, assuring us that we are yours and asserting it in us that the best is yet to come. Lord, forgive us for trying to squeeze you into lives when all the while you're inviting us into your life, which is better by far and tells a grander story. Forgive us for being so turned in like mirrors, always worried about what things relate to us instead of reflecting your glory. Father, forgive us for wasted time. Forgive us for wasted moments. Forgive us for prayers left unsaid, service for the Savior left undone, kind words left unspoken, encouragements withheld. Forgive us for making even our faith all about us and so little about you. Turn us inside out, upside down. And as your chosen people, may we not be frozen in our faith but rather knowing that we're chosen by God. And so today, as Christian people who are in Christ Jesus, help us to remember our geography, for we live in him, therefore we live for him. May that reassure our Christian doctors and nurses and healthcare workers on the front line, those in social work, those who are busy confronting the general public every day, whether it be parents stressing at home with children, may they be rooted in Christ. For those who work in shops and help maintain our community, may they be rooted in Christ. For the elderly and vulnerable feeling locked up and feeling alone, may they find their meaning and identity wrapped up in Christ. For those financially strapped and uncertain, may they know their certainty of being in Christ. For our missionary friends serving across this globe, may they be assured of their place in Christ. For Christian advisors and civil servants, may they know that they are rooted in Christ. And Lord, for those who hear that invitation today and are wavering and wondering and watching, may they see that in entrusting their lives and their all to you, O oh God, they have safety in Christ and that they are in the safest hands eternally. 
Lord, lead us to live praiseworthy lives. Remove from us anyone or anything that prevents us from giving you all the praise. And may it be all to your glory and grace. In our Savior's name we ask it. Amen.